Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid. Let's talk drugs. Prescription drugs. Prescription drugs through Medicare. Sometimes with people, when they are choosing between food and uh, prescriptions, that's what they need to do um, to, you know, to get those things paid for. That's Kim Scheffner, a senior health insurance program counselor for Medicare. We'll hear more from her in a few minutes. And we go on to mental health. Experts say reading may increase your lifespan, and an inexpensive way to do this is to go to a used bookstore, such as mm, Confluence Books, which does not look like Barnes & Noble, and that's its charm. Things that grow organically don't always grow pretty. Sarah Heyer, owner of Confluence Books, will talk about the growth of her bookstore. And are you listening to this program on your laptop, work computer, your phone, or maybe on the car radio? Hmm, Dick Taylor says a study was conducted and... They found that 82% of Americans over the age of 12 listen to radio every week. That's Dick Taylor, former media professor and broadcaster. He has some surprising news about radio, and we'll hear from him in a few minutes. And we'll have these stories, COVID and mental health. And in some states, COVID cases are increasing. And there's one state I'm sitting in right now where it is increasing. And many seniors are living paycheck to paycheck, and many are in debt. Student debt. Plus, Kendall Boyson will talk about the color of your moods, and Bob and Marcia Smith will keep your mind active with trivia. The news is next. And now more news about the disease we love to hate and would prefer not to hear that the summer surge in COVID-19 spread could extend into fall for Illinois and every other state. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said hospitalizations rose two weeks ago by another 19%. Deaths from the virus also saw a large jump, 21% in one week. The spread of the virus appears to be a problem just about everywhere. Only a few states, Alaska, New Hampshire, and North Dakota, saw COVID-related hospital admissions drop recently. The other 47 states saw hospitalizations remain stable or increase. According to the CDC, 26 states saw a substantial increase in COVID-19 admissions. Illinois saw COVID-19 hospitalizations jump by 28% in the last week of August, where 441 people were admitted to local hospitals with confirmed COVID-19 cases. However, the biggest spike was in South Dakota, where hospitalizations increased by more than 127% in a single week. That's according to CDC tracking. But help is on the way in the form of a new booster shot targeting a recent strain of the Omicron variant, but it's not expected to be approved until the end of September. And then on to COVID mental health. A study in the Harvard Business Review last year found rude behavior was increasingly the norm in this country. People relating to each other in public hasn't improved much since then. A few weeks ago, a video of an American Airlines pilot urging flyers to be nice and respectful to each other went viral. I shouldn't have had to say that, he said. And psychologists point out people are socializing less and reporting higher levels of loneliness and poorer well-being than before the pandemic. But at the same time, people seem to feel more comfortable canceling plans with others. Experts also noted the increasingly volatile political environment is contributing to a general loss of civility. 
They also pointed to how technology and social media in particular has fundamentally changed how people interact with the world. In a recent Washington Post story about bad behavior by tourists, clinical psychologist Andrea Bonia said social media is fueling a main character, that's main character, quote-unquote mindset that gives people permission to disregard others. She said there's an element of being the star of your own story. But experts say that doesn't mean the long-term changes need to be permanent. Several experts believe that we just need to work to come back together as a community and to practice the golden rule. And speaking of mental health, this from the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. A study of a large group of older adults showed that regular Internet users had about half the risk of dementia compared to their peers who did not use the Internet regularly. This despite differences in education, ethnicity, sex, generation, and signs of cognitive decline at the start of the study. Participants used the Internet between six and two hours per day. They had the lowest risk of dementia. Now, studies often link large amounts of time spent on the Internet with various psychological problems. However, the Internet also forms the backbone of modern economy and entertainment. Studies have shown that online engagement can make individuals more resilient against physiological damage to the brain that develops as people age. This can, in turn, help older adults compensate for brain aging and reduce the risk of dementia. And this way, Internet use can help extend a cognitively healthy lifespan. Now, previous studies have shown that Internet users tend to have better overall thinking performance, verbal reasoning, and memory than non-users. However, most of these studies did not track changes over time or track them for very short periods, so it could not be determined whether Internet use helps maintain cognitive functioning or whether individuals with better cognitive functioning were more likely to use the Internet. Now, with inflation... At 40-year highs, workers, rich, poor, middle class, are having a harder time making ends meet. Landing Club, that's a website, reports that as of May, 58% of Americans, that's about 150 million adults, live paycheck to paycheck. That's down slightly from 61% in April, but up from 54% in May of 2021. This reports... Fines of those earning $250,000 or more, 30% are living paycheck to paycheck. The Consumer Price Index, a key inflation gauge, rose 8.6% in May from a year ago, the highest increase since December of 1981. Now, this spurred by surging housing, gasoline, and food costs. Those rising prices meant workers took another pay cut during that month. When wages rise at a slower pace than inflation, paychecks won't stretch as making it more difficult to cover monthly expenses and set some money aside. The Lending Club survey reports that those struggling to afford their day-to-day lifestyle tend to rely on credit cards and they carry a higher monthly balance, making them financially vulnerable. Overall, Credit card balances rose year over year, reaching $841 billion in the first three months of 2022, according to a separate report from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Now, fueling that, surprisingly, is student debt. The think tank New America reports the number of people aged 60 and older who still have student loan debt has sextupled since 2004, and the amount they owe is up 19-fold, 19 times. These are now 3.5 million of them who collectively owe more than $125 billion in student loans. Now, a credit bureau 
data shows that the number of student loan borrowers has almost doubled since 2004, and the outstanding value of the debt has quadrupled. This growth has been more astronomical for those approaching retirement. The number of borrowers aged 60 and over sixfold grew uh, since 2004, while their outstanding debt increased 19-fold, 19 times. Today, 3.5 million Americans 60 and older hold over $125 billion in student loans. Now, while the growth in the number of older borrowers is strikingly clear, the reason for the growth isn't known. Think Tank New America finds a challenge the common explanation that the increase is primarily driven by parents taking on debt to finance their children's education. Instead, a significant number of borrowers nearing retirement are struggling to repay their own educational debt. Okay, let's go on to another subject that's not quite as grim as this one. Boomers. Open enrollment for Medicare is October 15th through December 7th. Now, based on my experience, selecting the best Medicare plan can be very complicated. I think it took me a day and a half of uh, studying on the web trying to find the right plan for myself a few years ago. Anyway, Medicare is making it easier for you. The Senior Health Insurance Program, it's called SHIP, is a free statewide health insurance counseling service for Medicare beneficiaries and their caregivers in every state in the union. SHIP provides free individual counseling services at local sites throughout your state and is dedicated to educating people with Medicare and their caregivers about available insurance options. Over the next few weeks, OK Boomer will be talking with Becky Salazar and Kim Scheffner of the Egyptian Area Agency on Aging about how to select the best plan and useful tips on how to use it. So let's start the series off with drugs. Researchers estimate that 25% of people ages 65 to 69 take at least five prescription drugs to treat chronic conditions, a figure that jumps to nearly 46% for those 70 and 79. Kim Scheffner is a regional SHIP Medicare counselor. If you, have, if you do not have a prescription, we will set up a Medicare Advantage account if you don't have one, and then we will load in your medications, so have all those medications handy, even if, if something comes in a box, you know, have that box too. We can do appointments over the phone or in person. Um, and then have a list of your favorite pharmacies that you like to go to and a few others that you may not normally go to because sometimes you get better deals at other pharmacies that you might go to. Um, so we, lo we load that all in. It comes with the best plan. Um, something some people don't realize about the prescription plans is that there are three types of pharmacies there's out of network, so you don't wanna to go to those. There's in network, which pays well. There's preferred networks, which generally pays the best out of the pharmacies. Um, so we like to choose that. Um, if you have generics, if you can get your uh, prescriptions in generics, get them in generic. If you can change from a tablet, from a capsule to a tablet, ask your physician to do so. Um, uh, the other thing is, uh, don't let any pharmacy tell you that you can only get your prescriptions through um, your prescription plan. If there is a per Medicare, if there is a if there is a prescription that you want, that is cheaper, getting it with a uh, discount card, you can use that. Or if just paying outright cash, you can do it that way. You do not have to buy strictly through your prescription plan. Now, if you're very savvy and you find out, oh. Uh, these three medications I get cheaper over at this pharmacy you can bring your plan over there and then you can bring your plan to another pharmacy if those are have a better price sometimes with people when they are choosing between food 
and uh, prescriptions, that's what they need to do um, to, you know, to get those things paid for. Um, so we hope to see you at open enrollment. Medicare counselor Kim Scheffner of the Egyptian Area Agency on Aging. And in future episodes, we'll uh, talk about how to select the best Medicare program for you. To get a hold of a SHIP counselor, contact your local senior regional agency on aging or your state government website. And oh yes, some say that the Egyptian nickname was given to Southern Illinois because of the Egyptian names of some of its towns, such as Cairo. Now, it's, it's pronounced elsewhere Cairo, but we pronounce it Cairo, Thebes, and Karnak. Others say that the name Egypt was coined for Southern Illinois by frontier explorers because the delta near the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers at the southernmost tip of Illinois looked similar to the land around the delta of the Nile River in Egypt. And this from Harvard University about researchers at Yale University School of Public Health studied the records of more than 5,600 participants in the health and retirement study, an ongoing investigation of people who were 50 or older and had provided information on their reading habits when the study began. They determined that people who read books regularly had a 20% lower risk of dying over the next 12 years compared with people who weren't readers or who read periodicals. This difference remained regardless of race, education, state of health, wealth, marital status, and depression. These findings, which were published in the September 2016 issue of Social Science and Medicine, suggest that the benefits of reading books may include a longer life in which to read them. OK Boomer talked with undisputed reading expert Sarah Heyer. Sarah owns a local bookstore, which I visited recently. And uh, Sarah tells me that... This bookstore has been growing organically since the beginning. And therefore, things that grow organically don't always grow pretty. Um, and some people think everything should be in order, in place, and neat. And it's just not possible, it seems to me. Plus, I've been told that it is okay that people who come to a used bookstore are looking for a treasure hunt, and they're going to be wanting to find a book that's not in the place where they'd expect it to be, because that means they've found something special. Now, what happens if someone comes in looking for a specific book? Do you have to rely on your memory to find it? Most books are where they're supposed to be. Uh, they're in the computer. We have them all organized. There's a system in the database, and I can look it up by author or title or something else and tell you exactly where it is supposed to be. Whether it is in that location, I've got a 99% chance that I can walk over and put my hand on it and hand it to you. But there's a 1% chance that it's like, oh, wait a minute, let me look someplace else. Uh, okay, so it's very casual atmosphere with books seemingly all over the place, but it does have an organization. Definitely. It's very well organized. You just don't notice it. I need to put up more signs so people can see how well organized it is. But there are also books that are not in the system. So in the front there are $2 mass market paperbacks. I just Sometimes I organize them a little bit. In the back room, there are $3 books that are not in the system. Just $3 each, 4 for 10 10 for 20 Just take them and get out of here. Um, get them out of here. And those are not, they're organized into fiction and nonfiction, and that's it. Okay. Well, let's go on to the advantages of reading. 
Um, I know one of the problems I've had with my cell phone, I read news, I read a lot of news off my cell phone. I'm not reading books as much anymore because I used to have maybe five books going in various places in the books and now I can make it through a book, one book in maybe six months. Are you seeing these problems too with boomers? Boomers not reading, Every nobody's reading as much as they used to and screens are one of the alternatives as are audio books so a lot of people are just doing books on audio which allows them to do something else at the same time which means they're not really paying as much attention to the book but it works it gets you the information into your head but it's not the same I don't think it says when you read a book versus listening to a book reading a book allows you to remember to notice things more what I've noticed now that I'm getting back to reading books is my attention span is too short. Like I could go through a chapter easily years ago. Now I have to break up the chapters and I have to actually concentrate. And by the time I'm finished with the chapter, I'm glad I did it that way. It's funny. Our, our attention spans are shorter um, and you do have to work on it, but it's worth rewarding if you do work on it and push yourself to pay attention to things more. And that's also good for your mind, good for your patience, good for your stress level. So stay with us for further developments. Confluence Books owner Sarah Heyer is a former professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale near where the bookstore is located. And Carbondale is located 50 miles north of where the Mississippi and Ohio rivers converge. Now, have you ever thought of assigning a color to your emotions? Okay, Boomer. Oh, you have? Well, you're a little young, but uh, this is oriented towards the Boomers. Boomer, have you ever thought of assigning a color to your mood? Are you feeling in the pink or are you feeling blue? But if you use your imagination, you could assign a color to one powerful emotion. Kendall Boyson describes that emotion. Kendall? Hi, Robert. Today on Encouragementology, we are taking a colorful look at joy as we explore its meaning and presence, contemplating the idea if joy were a color. When pure joy overflows and becomes so tangible, you can reach out and touch it. What color do you see? Maybe you're still waiting for that type of joyful overabundance to show itself in your life, and that's okay. Want some good news? Joy resides inside of you, and once you remove the barriers and unlock the resistance, it has room to activate in your life. Joy is defined as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. When did you feel a strong sense of pride, love, or gratitude? Were you beaming, eyes sparkling, body radiating positive energy? Don't overlook these joyful moments thinking joy has to be some steady state to be real. These moments, when recognized and celebrated, will be motivation for more. I had a friend use the term, if joy were a color, when describing a social encounter with a person who was communicating a recent win. She overheard the conversation and witnessed the winner so full of joy that she radiated a tangible experience. What a beautiful thought. Days, weeks, months, or even years can get messy and distracting. Our focus can be easily misdirected, and we can feel like we're barely getting by. 
Who has time for joy? George Bernard Shaw said, This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being thoroughly worn out before you're thrown on the scrap heap, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Over at Compassion.com, I found some differences between joy and happiness. Joy is a little word. Happiness is a big word. Joy is in the heart. Happiness is on the face. Joy is of the soul. Happiness is of the moment. Joy transcends. Happiness reacts. Joy embraces peace and contentment, waiting to be discovered. Joy runs deep and overflows while happiness hugs hello. Joy is a practice and a behavior. It's deliberate and intentional. Happiness comes and goes blithely along its way. Joy is profound and scriptural. Don't worry, rejoice. Happiness is a balm. Don't worry, be happy. Joy is an inner feeling. Happiness is an outward expression. Joy endures hardship and trials and connects with meaning and purpose. A person pursues happiness, but chooses joy. Sarah Christensen gives us 11 important differences between them. Joy is constant, while happiness is temporary. For example, having a baby can make a person joyous, and this feeling can last forever. But if you win the lottery, it can make you happy. In this instance, happiness is momentary, and eventually, your luck will be a past memory. Joy is about selflessness, and happiness involves pleasing oneself. Being selfless can mean ignoring your own feelings to benefit someone else. Although this can be a challenge, you can gain plenty of joy, meaning, and purpose from it. Joy can be deeply spiritual, but happiness lacks depth. Taking care of a pet can bring you joy, since bonding with animals allows you to connect with them. Plus, you also remember those times you took your dog for a walk, taught them a trick, or played frisbee. But drinking a cup of coffee or enjoying some nice weather can make you happy and content for the moment. Joy is meaningful while happiness feels good. Since joyful experiences are deep, they can also be memorable. For instance, you'd likely always remember holding your child's hand for the first time or hearing your husband or wife's laugh. Buying new clothes can feel good in the moment, but clothes are only material objects. Joy is a choice a person makes, while people chase after happiness. When you're immature, you might think you want certain things to make you happy and not understand the consequences. On the other hand, with maturity, you can consciously choose a partner who you share a genuinely mutual connection with. This could be a true joyful experience with a person you love. Joy involves trials and hardship, while happiness is easier to achieve. Taking care of a baby involves plenty of joy, but it also takes a lot of hard work, dedication, and selflessness. Joy is transformative, and happiness can hold you back. 
Joyful experiences can be life-changing. Alternatively, happy experiences aren't as intense or worthwhile. Therefore, they probably won't provoke any profound feelings in you that are life-changing. Joy connects people to each other, while happiness consists of momentary connections. Getting married can bring joy into one's life and help someone make meaningful connections that last a lifetime. You can have a new family who you love and focus on in a positive way. Another meaningful connection you could make is finding a real best friend who loves you for who you are and doesn't try to change you. Joy is a less common, stronger feeling than happiness. One reason why joy occurs less often is because it takes a great deal of maturity, selflessness, and effort. But with hard work and determination, you can experience additional joy. Joy is difficult to define in words, while one can easily describe happiness. The intensity associated with joyous experiences can make it difficult to describe. In fact, you'd likely have to actually experience joy in order to truly understand how it feels in various situations. Joy can be present where difficulties exist, but happiness can't live in this space. You could feel intensely alone and empty, but having spiritual beliefs at this time could make you profoundly joyful. However, the feeling of loneliness can be so intense that it makes it impossible to be happy. So I challenge you, embrace joyful moments and notice the colors and unique feelings that lift your spirit. Don't stop there. Remove any barriers and negative thoughts to release pure joy in your life. I know you can do it. Back to you, Robert, and OK Boomer. And you can visit Kendall Boyson at her website, encouragementology.com. The word encouragement and then ology.com. Now let's talk about radio. I uh, talked to some uh, kids uh, somewhere in their 30s, and they say their grandmother listened to the radio, and they listened to it. Uh, I've heard um, stories of people um, maybe listening to radio, but Bluetooth, and if the Bluetooth failed, they'll listen to a regular radio station. Dick Taylor tells me there's something kind of uh, surprising about the information he has. Well, we're three years into the second century of commercial radio broadcasting, so what do we know about radio listeners in 2023 and the broadcasting industry that serves them? The Pew Research Center recently completed a study to find the answers to these questions. They found that 82% of Americans over the age of 12 listen to radio every week. Now, while that number is down 10% from 2009 in today's very competitive media landscape, that makes broadcast radio a giant in terms of audience reach. What's radio's biggest competitor? On-demand media. People today want to be able to listen to what they want, on the platform they want, when they want it. 2023 marks the first time that on-demand platforms attracted more share of audio listening than linear broadcast ones. When it comes to news, 47% of adults turn on their radio at least sometimes. However, when we drill this question down, we learn that only 7% of adults say they prefer getting their news from radio broadcasts. Podcast listening continues to grow, with 42% of adults saying they listen. 
However, it should be noted that while podcasts started out being only an on-demand audio presentation, today 75% of podcast users consider a podcast to be audio or video. In spite of the many audio choices today's media consumer has to select from, radio is still the medium that reaches more Americans every week, according to the Nielsen Company. For radio to continue to dominate the media landscape, the industry must deliver to its audience what it's asking for, in the way they wish to receive it. NPR, for example, makes everything they broadcast available on its website, social media, podcasts, and video on demand. Radio's strongest asset is its connection to the community it serves. Managed properly, radio can stay strong and vital in the years ahead. It really comes down to the attitude of the people who own and operate America's radio stations. So the answer to the question about radio's future and whether it will continue to be the dominant media platform comes down to some wise words that Henry Ford once said. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So that's the story of radio the way it is right now. And you can check out Dick at DickTaylorBlog.com. DickTaylorBlog.com. And now it's time to have a little walk to the coffee machine, but we've got a little problem here at the studio. Um, Southern Illinois has a variety of different creatures, including some rather big ones, like this grasshopper. He's in the corner there, and he's troublesome, I'll tell you that. He's messing around, and um, generally a grasshopper wouldn't hurt anything. Well, he broke the lamp. But this grasshopper, uh, goes the window, this grasshopper is six feet long. I'm following him, and he's, oh, no, he's going into the break room. Oh, that's not a good place to go because that's where the coffee machine is, and I need my coffee every single day. It's a six-foot, and with the coffee machine, yeah, he's running around causing all sorts of problems. I'm going to get him. Here we go. <laughs> well, that'll teach him. Up and coming Bob Smith and his wife Marcia with the off-ramp trivia. But first, several years ago I was having all sorts of trouble designing a business card. Now how difficult could that be? Name, address, telephone number, logo. But after several weeks of thinking about it, it, it seemed as if I were writing a thousand-page technical manual on how to design a business card. But the problem wasn't the business card. It was my good buddy named Procrastination. So I went to this seminar, and when I returned, my good buddy, Mr. Procrastination, was gone. And there was one person who chased him away. Her name is Terry Sterling Donovan. So one day, while working at WRFN Radio in Nashville, Tennessee, I picked up the phone and... Good afternoon, Terry. Hello, how are you? Pretty good. I've stopped procrastinating on my business card. Good job. That sounds great. <laughs> Thank you very much. And it says telling your story to grow your business. That's what you do. That's right. I have owned my own marketing, advertising, public relations, and marketing research firm for the past 26 years. Well, that's a long time. My question here is, we met at a uh, meetup in Murfreesboro on Tuesday, and... 
I've been at several meetups and I've been at several business conferences and I and I I didn't have a a current business card because I wanted everything to look perfect. Yes, that is a familiar uh, story. I think that we all uh, can relate to. Well, I've got my business card finished. I want to read it to you. Great. Okay, Robert Rickman. Am I doing okay so far? You're perfect. Ah, okay. Uh, RobertRickman.net, phone number, my email address. And then I have um, age 63, 5'9", uh, likes to take long walks in the park, enjoys... Were you laughing? I am, I am. Why, why you don't think that's a good idea? That's a lot of information to put on your business. Okay, I'm joking. Uh, I have the basic information uh, on the business card, and, and it took me a very short amount of time. Once I got on the website, I used Vistaprint, and I found a, a design that appealed to me right off, and it took me probably a half hour to put the whole thing together. But based on what I told you at this meetup, um, why did I procrastinate? I think many of us can relate to the idea that we want to have things just right and just so before we pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And um, I've learned over managing clients and projects and work over the past 26 years that, of course, shooting for excellent results and high quality is always part of what most of us want to to do when we're executing any type of work. But sometimes we have to say good enough is good enough. Let's go forward with what we have right now for a variety of reasons to meet a deadline for practicality's sake, like in your case with a business card. Um, And then once we know more about the situation, we can go back and do more. And I think it works, that philosophy works pretty well today because many of the things we do today are digital. They're online. Mm -hmm. And we can always go in and, for instance, improve a website, improve an email campaign, improve um, any type of project online because there is no finite beginning and end. And with the business card today, in your case, uh, Robert, they're pretty affordable. So today you can go ahead, create a business card so you have something to hand out and share with people at meetup groups, at networking groups. And then as you develop a logo and you develop more information you'd like to put on the card, you can simply print another card. I know. And, you know, that, that's an obvious thing to me. I was messing around with a logo for myself, and I just got to the point of I'm not going to print this for twelve ninety five until I get everything perfect. Right. right. And, and that's yeah, what happened. That's we're our own worst enemy sometimes from, in that regard. Um, just a few things I've learned about procrastination over the years. Um, and, and, you know, I procrastinate. I think most of us uh, procrastinate to some extent. Um, some of us more than others, I think. And in thinking about why we pro- procrastinate, um, I think there are several reasons. I think, you know, you named one of them, that we want things to be perfect. Um, I think a lot of times, too, we're approaching a task or a project or some a sub-body of work that we need to get accomplished, and it seems big. It seems overwhelming. Yep, yep. And we don't know where to start, so we just don't start. Right. That's that's my style. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a lot, of, lot of our styles on different days and different periods of time in our lives. And 
one thing I've learned to do when I have that situation is to break it down into smaller pieces. Mm-hmm. It's that old adage, you know, how do you eat an elephant? And it's one bite at a time. And so, uh, for instance, today I'm working on a campaign for one of my clients, and there are multiple pieces of it. And it's, it's going to be a lot of work, a lot of focused concentration. And so uh, instead of, you know, sitting there thinking about that for a long time and feeling paralyzed, I kind of wrote it all down. I got it on a piece of paper in front of me. And I said, okay, what, what do I need to do first so that then that can help inform the other pieces? And I'm doing first things first. Yeah. Um, and creating the core core piece of information, and then I'll go ahead and cr- create the collateral pieces. And and that's breaking down a big task into manageable bites, and that really helps me a lot. Well, you know, what? when I uh, I was going to interview you and, and record it first, but then I figured I'd be in the, the production studio editing it and messing around with it for hours. So I decided, well, let's do it live if you could do it. Um, the perfectionism uh, goes out the window when you're doing something live, you know, in real time. Uh, but but I also understand uh, the necessity for breaking things down. I went on your website, and I saw all of your information. It's a nice-looking website, a lot of nice visuals. And I also have your um, meetup uh, handout that you gave us. And when I was studying this over the weekend, I thought, oh, wh- where am I going to start? What am I going to do? And it just churned around in my head for a while until I thought, well, maybe we can talk about my procrastination. Well, I, I think that was a great place to start because, uh, you know, you and I had some good conversation last week, but I think the place we really connected was me asking you for your business card. And you <laughs> said, gosh, I don't have one. And I'm like, well, how am I going to know how to, to get in touch with you? And we kind of, you know, a little bit jokingly went back and forth. And, then and, and, and I, made, I made an ad hoc business card for you. Yes, you did. Yes, on the back did. of the receipt. Absolutely. Which you know what? That worked fine. (laughs) (laughs) But I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to hand it out uh, on a routine basis, right? Well, no, of course not. But I think that uh, in that scenario, the the point was: how do we connect after this after this meeting? And so you provided that mechanism. Okay. And then you you chose to say, "Hey, I'm going to commit to getting this card done, and I'm going to commit that I'm going to get it done within a week." And, and you know, you, it, that, I think you were practicing another aspect of breaking the chain of procrastination, and that's accountability. Well, I think when we tell somebody else we're going to do something, we're first of all telling ourselves we're going to do it, but then we're making ourselves accountable to someone outside ourselves, and that really helps a lot in getting the task accomplished. It also uh, works into the field that I spent a lot of time in, that was news, I worked at a news station where we had to rewrite every newscast and go on the air every hour before CBS. We had no chance to procrastinate. We just had to get it done, and that was hour after hour. And then when I'm left to my own devices, I just sit there and suck my thumb and, and play, um, play plants versus zombies. Well, I, I think, again, I think we can all relate to that feeling. I really haven't met anybody who doesn't procrastinate at least a little bit. Um, but, you know, as we've talked, there are some, some ways to kind of trick ourselves and, and get ourselves out of that. And another one that I like to use, too, is when I think about the next day and what I have to do the next day, 
and I look at my calendar, I look at my meetings, I have a list of phone calls, et cetera, that I have to accomplish, I try to block out uh, big blocks of time or maybe small blocks of time, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour to work on something. And then I work really, really hard to hold myself accountable to that as much as I can. Sometimes things have to change, and that's, of course, being flexible, which is different than procrastinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we again, we have to kind of, we've got to get our work done, right? We've got to get something accomplished. Right. Most of us do. So how are we going to get that done despite the fact that many of us do procrastinate a little bit or a lot? Well, that's good advice. Any more advice about uh, procrastination and how to put a stop to it? I think, you know, first being self-aware about our own degree of procrastination. Mm-hmm. How much do we really procrastinate? And some of us a little bit, some of us a lot. How big of a problem is it? And if we find ourselves constantly feeling uh beating ourselves up because we didn't get something done, um, then I think we have to look at some of these uh, tricks and tips to try to, again, jog ourselves out of that habit. Accountability, um, planning ahead, breaking big tasks down into smaller bites, and then attitude. Our attitude is important about uh, wanting to achieve really high results, but knowing when good enough is good enough getting it done, and moving on to the next thing. Terry Sterling Donovan is the owner of Sterling Communications located in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, 30 miles south of Nashville. And now let's talk about Bob Smith. Bob and I worked together on a college radio station, WSIU, where we went to Southern Illinois University. Then we worked at a station called WRAJ in Anna, Illinois. I didn't hear this, but I heard about it. You see, my... uh, Reputation preceded me. 11.44 on WRAJ. This song reminds me of the first time that uh, Bob Rickman applied to work here at the station. We uh, looked over Bob's qualifications. We said, (laughs) uh, Bob, uh, don't call us. We'll call you if we get something. Of course, things got uh, a little tighter later on. We just had to hire someone. A long-distance directory assistance. Every coat two-on-two. Jerry Corbetta and Sugarloaf. Don't call us, we'll call you. Speaking of calling, as I said, we were uh, getting kind of short of help, and uh, we were forced to call up Bob Rickman. So uh, we did, we called him. Of course, we waited until about uh, 2.30 in the morning before we decided to call him. Hello. Partly cloudy this afternoon, a bit cooler with temperatures expected in the 50s. Right now, 52 degrees in downtown Anna as we bring you the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. Well, Bob, despite your best efforts, I got hired. And now, back to you with the off-ramp. Where does the term tank top come from? And what was the best toy of the 20th century? In your opinion? Apparently everybody. Okay. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith.
Welcome to The Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and learn something with some fascinating trivia. All right, we've got it right here, Marcia. Where did the term tank top come from? Well... We usually think of this with those... Uh, sleeveless. Sleeveless t-shirts men wear. Uh, Bruce Willis wore them. Marlon yeah. Brando well, wore them. women wear them, too. Women wear them, too. Yes. Where did the term come from? I don't know. People used to be dumped in tanks, and they'd put those on. Well, the word tank applied to a certain thing for recreation. In Great Britain. Tell me. Swimming pools. Oh, really? Well, that makes sense. The pool tank. Yeah. During the early 20th century... British swimming pools were called tanks. I've got to dive in the tank. Got to take a dip in the tank. Yeah. And British swimsuits were known as tank suits. That makes sense. Well, tank tops were part of the two-part bathing suits back then for both genders. So if swimsuits were tank suits, the top part of a tank suit was the tank top. And that's where it came from. Awesome. Information, (laughs) Bob. I can take that to the bank. Okay, Bob. In 1999, Mm -hmm. this toy was elected toy of the 20th century what was it it was barbie nope it wasn't no oh no not at all teddy ruxpin no No, um, 20th century bob that's the hula hoop no okay what would be the toy of the 20th century wait a minute let me think for just a moment popular still popular Mm -hmm. was it play-doh or was it What's the other thing I'm thinking Think about of? about it. I know. It bounces. What is it called? No, it's not. Silly putty. Nope. Okay, how about slinky? No. I'm out of Up toys. There. I'm yeah, out you of are. toys. But okay. this is one everybody has in their basements. We certainly do. It is Legos. Oh, no kidding. Yes. So who's the source for this? The British Association of Toy Retailers. And okay. uh, uh, Legos are still very popular. The Danish Building Blocks toy was named by its founder, Ole Kirk Christensen. And the name Lego, he made up by taking the first two letters of the Danish words leg and got, (laughs) meaning play well. Play well. Yeah. All right. So that's how he came up with Lego. Okay. Marcia, I have a number of questions today on state fairs. You know, this is a time of the year where state fairs are taking place or have concluded. Uh-huh. What state hosted the first state fair in the United States? I'll say. Let me give you a choice. <laughs> oh, better yet. New York, Florida, California, or Indiana. And I'll give you the date, too. 1841. New York. That is exactly right. The uh, state of New York airmarked $8,000, which was a big sum of money back then, and it was for the promotion of agriculture and household manufacturing in the state. It drew 15,000 people, the first one in 1841, mostly farmers who heard speeches, saw animal exhibits, and checked out manufactured goods. And the most popular event, this would be a major event today, uh-huh. a plowing contest. <laughs> <laughs> Wisconsin still has them, I'm sure. I've got another one I'll ask you right away here, okay? Okay. This is one of the big things you'll find at almost every state fair. It's sugary. It disappears almost immediately. And it was invented by a dentist, believe it or not. What was it? Oh, 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 oh. Gummies? No. Here's some choices. Candy apples, cotton candy, funnel cakes, or kettle corn. One of those was invented by a dentist. Yeah. (laughs) Kettle corn. 
Well, that's probably the least difficult one from the standpoint of sugar. That's oh, probably yeah. a good was, one. Yeah, I know what it was. It was the cotton candy. That's exactly <laughs> right. Oh, God. It might seem pretty odd for a dentist to invent a food from nothing huh? but sugar, but that's exactly what William Morrison did in 1897. His name lives in infamy in the Dental Hall of Fame. Okay. With his partner, he created a machine to spin sugar into a light, airy candy. They called it Fairy Floss or cotton candy, as it became known. It was a huge hit at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. All right, Bob, you'll like this. Mm -hmm. One famous rocker was overseas and kept hearing the famous ballad, Oh, Solo Mio. Remember Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. It was an operatic piece written in 1898 and popularized by Mario Lanz in the 1950s. The answer is Elvis. Shoot. <laughs> well, he did. What's the song? Um, Gosh, it's based on that song. Yes. It's Now or Never. That's it. That's it. He was enchanted with that song when he was in the army over there. Okay. And he kept hearing it and asked his writers to devise an English version of that, particularly for him. And it was Now or Never. And it was another number one hit for Elvis that displayed at that time a whole new level of voice range for him. Yes, yes. Uh, After leaving the Army. Years later, Priscilla Presley, his widow, Mm -hmm. said Elvis loved that song more than any he had ever recorded. No kidding. Yeah. Who are the writers that's credited to? It was written by Wally Gold, Aaron Schrader, and Eduardo Di Capua. Okay, Marcia, there is an author you mentioned at lunch today that you're reading, Jodi Picoult. Uh Uh-huh. So I have a question about her. Okay. She's a famous and very popular novelist right now. Mm-hmm. What connection does author Jody Picoult have with Wonder Woman? <laughs> well, hmm. I'll say, I don't know, is her sister play Wonder Woman in a movie? No, tell me. American fiction writer Jodi Picoult, she's published 27-plus novels. She also wrote several issues of Wonder Woman. Oh, she did? Yeah. She was born in 1966. She studied creative writing at Princeton, got a master's in education from Harvard, and she was the writer of the Wonder Woman series for DC Comics for a time in 2007. She wrote four numbers in the comic book series, volumes 3, 4, 5, and 6, just as her first novel, 19 Minutes, was climbing the charts. It hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list that uh, June. While in college, she published stories in Seventeen magazine. Uh-huh. After graduation, she edited textbooks, and for a time, like Stephen King, she taught school. It's like many of us. We wrote every kind of thing you can imagine. But since 2007, Jody has been one of the most successful novelists in popular literature. Her books have sold 40 million copies and uh, have been translated into 34 languages. Jeez. Jody Picoult. She's a good writer. And she wrote for one. Wonder Woman. (laughs) All right, Bob. Do you think anyone ever personally owned Stonehenge? Well, I imagine that land was owned by families over the centuries, I would assume. Well, you think right. Yeah, those big stones out there by the cows. (laughs) You know, we got the cows out there Mm -hmm, around the big stones. It was privately owned for centuries. You're right. Okay. Starting in the 12th century, one family, the Atrobus family, owned it right until the 19th century. Holy, they owned it for 700 yeah, years? Yeah, it was, it was wow. handed down and handed down. And the Antrobus family even uh, appointed a warden in 1822 to guard it because suddenly it started word getting around, this weird thing out in the land there was... Uh, what was attracting uh, people? That's exactly scavengers right. Scavengers and so stuff? So people would come and uh, chip off pieces by it. Oh, wow. 
and that got them upset. The heir to the Antrobus Baronactici was killed during World War I, and the baronet himself died not long after. The land was auctioned off to a wealthy local barrister named Cecil Chubb in 1915. <laughs> 1915? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Chubb believed that such a place should be owned by the public, and he gifted it to the British government. As a thank you, they knighted him. <laughs> well, that's a nice thank you. Speaking of the dead and dying, Marcia. <laughs> Always a popular subject in this house. What's the percentage of Americans today who are buried in caskets versus cremation? Things have been changing oh, over yeah, the years. Yeah, yeah, definitely shift in the percentages. So what do you want? Uh, percentage? How many people are cremated today as opposed to buried? I'll say 70% of people are cremated today. Oh, really? No, it's not that much. No? Okay. Now, according to the story, Flowers, Flames, Open Skies, One Man's Ideal Farewell. <laughs> That's a great title for a story from the New York Times. More than half of Americans today are now cremated after death. That is a remarkable change from the 20th century when it was considered against sensibilities. Yeah. Okay. What famous rock and roll song, Bob Smith? was inspired by a bottle of Pepsi-Cola being agitated. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay, so this is something about fizzing or, uh, let's see. So they shake the Pepsi up and it would explode. Shake, rattle, and roll. Would that be it? Not too far away. Okay. All shook up. All shook up, really? <laughs> so it came from somebody shaking a bottle of Pepsi? Yeah. Songwriter Otis Blackwell was trying to repeat his Elvis hit, Don't Be Cruel, but he had a huge writer's block. And one of the owners of his publishing company happened to be shaking up a bottle of Pepsi, and it inspired the guy to suggest to Blackwell, why don't you write something with the title All Shook Up? Well, he did, and it was the biggest selling single of 1957. No kidding. I'm all shook up. Uh And it came because somebody was shaking up Pepsi. That's right. (laughs) Well, see, there's inspiration everywhere. Everywhere. That's right. They're digestive systems for microbes that might be useful in breaking down and recycling styrofoam. You think that would just gum up their intestines. You would think so. Just, wow. But superworms have discovered styrofoam. It's their number one snack food now. Well, and no little chocolate on top or anything. (laughs) Apparently not. Or peanut butter, right? Yeah. Please, a little peanut butter on top of that. (laughs) Okay, Bob, why do we nod our head for yes and shake our head for no? That's interesting because we just did a question a couple weeks ago about what country where they're the opposite of what we think they are. You know, here we nod for yes Uh and no is shake. But there's very few people in the world that don't do that. Okay. The answer must come from some customs, and it must go way, way, way back, and I have no idea. No, it's not customs. Charles Darwin figured it out. He said the response spans most cultures of the world and comes from infant nursing habits. Really? Yep. When a baby nods forward, it is seeking its mother's breast, and when it turns away or to the side, it's indicating it's not hungry or in need of comfort. Support for this theory comes from the fact that a baby born deaf and blind will follow the same pattern of nodding and shaking into adulthood. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. They they just intrinsically know that uh, if they want something, they nod yes and back and forth for no. Who knew? Yeah. That's that, fascinating. Yeah, so Darwin, yeah, studied all these people, including the deaf and the uh, blind. That's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's good. Hilarious. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp.
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin. And that wraps it up. Thanks to Terry Sterling Donovan, Kendall Boyson, Becky Salazar and Kim Scheffner, Dick Taylor, Sarah Heyer, Bob and Marcia Smith, and Janice Paul. OK Boomer is produced in the studios of WDBX Radio in Carbondale, Illinois, and is also broadcast on WRFN Radio in Nashville, Tennessee. And you can find OK Boomer with Robert wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can find OK Boomer on Facebook. And check us out at robertrickman.net. And this is Robert Rickman, reminding you that we all have choices. <laughs>